Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Coenos Hermes. Last time, we started to consider something stranger and more dangerous than we might at first realize. In fact, I think it would be good to pause and try to appreciate the wildness of what we have suggested in the last contemplation, and in fact, in many others like it. And I'd like to do that in part in anticipation of a guest who will join us in a few episodes from now, a long-lost soul brother of mine named Jeff Kripal. Jeff is a scholar of comparative religion down at Rice University. He's also a dean down there. And we will discuss his most recent book called The Superhumanities. It's about how all of us are, at least potentially, superhuman. Jeff and I share a commitment to honoring the wondrous and the superness that is indigenous to our own soul and the soul of the world. We live in a magical cosmos, but that's not easy to recognize in the context of the dominant culture. In our last contemplation, we tried to get in touch with the possibility that the style of consciousness the dominant culture bequeaths to us all, seduces us all into, indoctrinates us all into, that style of consciousness might not be the most skillful and poised style of consciousness we're capable of manifesting. And that is a dangerous thing to suggest for a lot of reasons. If we look at the world and we sense the catastrophes rising and the catastrophes yet to come, we might wonder, well, how did this happen? How did we get another war in Europe? How did we get all this plastic rocket fuel and forever chemicals in our blood? How could we possibly have created this much inequality and injustice and put the conditions of life at risk? How in the world did we do that? And we could ask all sorts of questions in that same vein, that same basic vein, the big, biggest one might be, how do you get to the point where you put the conditions of life that you depend on at risk? But whatever our questions about the mess we see, what if the answer to them all comes down to something like this? It's the mind we're using to do everything. The style of consciousness we manifest in this world. It's just not a very skillful one. And the state of the world is the proof of that. And we tried to get at the weirdness of that because we're going around thinking we're using our mind. And it just is. This just is our mind. This just is our consciousness. But that's not the whole story. Consciousness has a developmental path. It doesn't reveal that it is showing us a world we create, especially with the kinds of limitations that our style of consciousness comes with. So we construct our experience in a limited and limiting way. We are self-limiting, 
self-domesticating the wildness and wonder of the mystery. And it also is fragmenting because it is fragmented. Now we considered some fairly tame yet profound examples of how our habitual consciousness might be limiting us and contributing to our problems on a personal and planetary scale. Now I say they're tame because we didn't get into the wildest, most anomalous sorts of phenomena we could have. We're trying to make a sensible case here in a way that doesn't cause our reasoning or our emotions to just take offense and dismiss what we're trying to think through. And we are suggesting something, again, more dangerous, more radical than we might initially suspect. That we don't sense how much we're out of our own minds. But if we can spend enough time in nature... And, more importantly, in a way, if we can spend enough time in spiritual practice, that can begin to help us to sense how out of our minds we habitually are. That is to say, how we're, everything we're doing happens on the basis of a mind that's not very skillful and realistic. And we looked at how spending time in nature in as wild a place as we can get to, can itself help us to sense some of our own insanity. But only by means of a holistic philosophy of life can we tap into the fullness of what our culture cuts us off from. This cutting off, being cut off from spiritual and ecological realities, it amounts to the creation of a vast gap between the consciousness and experiences typical of the dominant culture on the one hand and our fuller mysterious potentials on the other. Because of the pervasiveness of the dominant culture and because its presence leads to the breakdown of more powerful forms of awareness and experience, we have little or no understanding of it in the dominant culture. We do not observe it and we do not cultivate it, which requires holistic practices of philosophy. It requires holistic philosophies of life. Once we begin to question our very style of consciousness, our whole way of thought, speech, and activity, we put everything in question. Even very basic things like identity, number, space, truth, individual, collective, and more. In general, we cannot conceive these things in ways that transcend the developmental path of our own consciousness. And so we have a hard time perceiving things that don't fit with our habitual way of life. More profound forms of consciousness might be particularly vulnerable to states that our culture encourages or allows to proliferate. For instance, more profound forms of consciousness might be vulnerable to anger, deceit, distraction, greed, and aggression. And they may also be vulnerable to disconnection from nature. 
the dominant culture feeds on the activation of the very things that interfere with knowing ourselves, each other, and the world we share in better and more vitalizing ways. The pattern of insanity that characterizes the dominant culture interferes with our own superness, our own magic, and our intimacy with the great mystery. The philosophy of the dominant culture encourages the practice and realization of the very things that cut us off from our fuller potentials. And philosophers in the university system do little to teach students how to transform. The cultivation of states like anger, greed, aggression, and deceit go all together with conquest and the conquest style of consciousness, and this leads to the total breakdown of more empowered and empowering forms of awareness. We in the dominant culture live in a context that encourages the invisibility of these other forms of awareness. It discourages their cultivation, certainly in any way that could be threatening to the system, and then it encourages and even insists upon their dissolution if they somehow arise. That's part of spiritual materialism, but there's a cultural dimension to spiritual materialism. The larger system is always living itself through us and controlling the kinds of insights, the kinds of transformations, or what we do with them. What are we not likely or not able to become conscious of simply by living in the dominant culture? That's an important question. It's a bit scary. What does the culture make us likely to have as our experience? What kind of experience does it make likely? What kind of world does it make likely? The general answer to that last question seems to be something degraded and fragmented and limited. We look at the world and we can see that fragmentation we can see the degradation of ecologies. And again, we're talking about a style of consciousness. It might just seem like we're talking about the difference between being egocentric and ecocentric. Or we're talking about how the greed of capitalism causes pollution, extraction, degradation, extinction. Sure, yes, that's all very important, but we have to recognize that when we're talking about a style of consciousness that style of consciousness affects our understanding of the most basic things, like our own identity and the very nature of time and space, the very nature of reality. And we may fancy, we may imagine to ourselves that we can entertain novel notions about the nature of reality, but not if we don't really shift our style of consciousness. Then it's only intellectual. Now, this also can affect the way we think science works. And we've been trying to point out we don't want to get rid of science or minimize the cogency that it has, but we can try to think about how we might transform our science. And Nietzsche actually has some interesting things to say about how we view science. There's a lovely passage. I'll let you know it's a couple paragraphs. It's not super long, but I'll let you know when we get to the end. Here's what Nietzsche wrote. 
Do we really want to permit existence to be degraded for us like this? Reduced to a mere exercise for a calculator and an indoor diversion for mathematicians. So he's talking about how we do science and what we think that means about reality. So let me, let me just say that again because it's so funny. So here we think we're doing, we're brilliant and we're so clever and we're so intelligent. And we're going to sit down in a room with our calculators and figure out how reality works. And Nietzsche says, do we really want to permit existence to be degraded for us like this? Reduced to a mere exercise for a calculator and an indoor diversion for mathematicians. Above all, one should not wish to divest existence of its rich ambiguity. That is a dictate of good taste, ladies and gentlemen. The taste of reverence for everything that lies beyond your horizon. That the only justifiable interpretation of the world should be one in which you are justified, because one can continue to work and do research scientifically in your sense, you really mean mechanistically. An interpretation that permits counting, calculating, weighing, seeing and touching and nothing more. That is a crudity and naivety, assuming it is not a mental illness, an idiocy. A scientific interpretation of the world, as you understand it, might therefore still be one of the most stupid of all possible interpretations of the world, meaning that it would be one of the poorest in meaning. This thought is intended for the ears and consciences of our mechanists, who nowadays like to pass as philosophers and insist that mechanics is the doctrine of the first and last laws on which all existence must be based as on a ground floor. But an essentially mechanical world would be an essentially meaningless world. So that's the passage from Nietzsche. That's from a text we mentioned before in a previous contemplation, the Gaia Scientia, the gay science, the happy science, the joyful wisdom and that's section 373 on science as a prejudice. The joyful wisdom is what he invites us into. It's so funny, but last time in our contemplation, remember, we were talking about how the built environment seems to make us less creative, less innovative thinkers. And certainly not all scientists do all their work indoors. But a lot of cognitive neuroscientists do, and that's why we were talking about David Strayer. And then a lot of scientists who go in the field might do a lot of their work of interpreting, framing, and so on, a lot of work in the built environment. And it's not to say that they can maintain the mind that they were they had in the field, or even because when they're in the field, they might be surrounded by tech, reliant on technology. All this can be altering their consciousness, and the style of consciousness is still basically the same. We're trying to make that clear. But it's so interesting to think of Nietzsche's suggestions and reflections here in the present context in particular when we're probably indoors more than he was. An indoor 
Diversion, he sang, for mathematicians, philosophers, coders, gamers, binge-watchers, shoppers, gamblers, consumers of every kind. Life has become an indoor diversion. What a strange thought. Life is an indoor diversion. What do we practice and realize in this culture? What truths, what truthfulness, what knowing, what ways of knowing and being, living and loving have we cut ourselves off from because we limit our ecologies of practice and realization? We limit them, fragment them, domesticate and weaken them. And the fragmentation happens with how we know the world because in our universities, the scientists do their work, the philosophers and others in the humanities do another kind of work, at times trying to mimic the scientists in certain ineffectual ways. The artists do yet another type of work. And sometimes the artists might establish their identity in contrast to science. Or in countless other ways, might invite unconscious limitations to themselves, all of these groups in their own ways. Two scientists, even in the same general field, let's say physics, may have difficulty truly understanding one another, if they're talking about the leading edge of their research, to say nothing of two scientists in relatively divergent fields, say physics and biology. It's not to say there can't be any crosstalk, it's just to say there is a lot of fragmentation. Anybody who would try to deny that would be crazy. So all of that is part of the context, to see that we're talking about something more dangerous than it might at first seem. And last time we said we were going to take a look at Wendell Berry, the poet-farmer. And that's in connection with the passage we considered from Jung when Jung was encouraging us, Carl Jung, the great psychologist, encouraging us to cultivate our relationship with earth. And Wendell Berry invites us to consider the necessary relationships between mind, body, soul, and soil. And he has an emphasis on health that aligns his views with Jung's reflections on health and healing. If you didn't catch that, you might want to go back and listen. It's worth listening to. Jung is a wonderful person to think with. And the whole notion of health and healing is central to philosophy. Philosophy is therapeia, therapy for the soul, that is about a truly healthy, vibrant life. Now, we're going to look at a chapter from Wendell Berry's 2002 book, The Art of the Commonplace. And he begins with a feel for something like vision. And we've touched on that idea many times, that without vision the people perish. We need a revisioning in the core philosophies of the dominant culture. That's part of our problem. And here's what he says. It's a couple paragraphs. I'll let you know when we get to the end. Barry writes, The question of human limits of the proper definition and place of human beings within the order of creation finally rests upon our attitude toward our biological existence, the life of the body in this world. What value and respect do we give to our bodies? What uses do we have for them? What relation do we see, if any, between body and mind or body and soul? 
What connections or responsibilities do we maintain between our bodies and the earth? These are religious questions, obviously, for our bodies are part of the creation. And they involve us in all the issues of mystery. But the questions are also agricultural, for no matter how urban our life, our bodies live by farming. We come from the earth and return to it. And so we live in agriculture as we live in flesh. While we live, our bodies are moving particles of the earth, joined inextricably both to the soil and to the bodies of other living creatures. It is hardly surprising, then, that there should be some profound resemblances between our treatment of our bodies and our treatment of the earth. Until modern times, we focused a great deal of the best of our thought upon rituals of return to the human condition, seeking enlightenment or the promised land or the way home. A person would go or be forced to go into the wilderness, measure themselves against the creation, recognize finally their true place within it, and thus be saved both from pride and from despair. Seeing themselves as a tiny member of a world they cannot comprehend or master or in any final sense possess, they cannot possibly think of themselves as a god. And by the same token, since they share in, depend upon, and are graced by all of which they are a part, neither can they become a fiend. They cannot descend into the final despair of destructiveness. Returning from the wilderness, they become a restorer of order, a preserver. They see the truth, recognize their true heir, honor, their forebears and their heritage and give their blessings to their successors. They embody the passing of human time, living and dying within the human limits of grief and joy. Okay, that's that passage. We're going to think together a little more with Wendell Berry, but let's pause here to notice how his suggestions resonate with others we've considered. The gold standard of knowledge in our culture is a vague ideal we call science. But the gold standard of knowledge in other cultures involved going into the wilderness to experience something firsthand. Buddha went into the wild forest. Jesus went into the wild desert. Milarepa went into the wild mountains and so it went with countless saints, sages, shamans, and wise ones. And let's include the priestesses too, in case anybody thinks that the saints or the sages can't be priestesses, or witches, or other wise ones. And we considered how contemporary scientists themselves can go to wild places in order to accomplish science. And that gives us an indication that we have something very backward in our thinking. 
In his book, Wendell Berry goes on to discuss health, beginning with our habitual notions of health that are both limited and limiting. We're talking about how we view health in practice and how we might otherwise think of it. So let's return to Wendell Berry. I'll let you know when we get to the end of this quote. By health, we mean merely the absence of disease. Our health professionals are interested almost exclusively in preventing disease, mainly by destroying germs, and in curing disease, mainly by surgery and by destroying germs. But the concept of health is rooted in the concept of wholeness. To be healthy is to be whole. The word health belongs to a family of words, a listing of which will suggest how far the consideration of health must carry us. Heal, whole, wholesome, hail, hallow, holy. And so it is possible to give a definition to health that is positive and far more elaborate than that given to it by most medical doctors and the officers of public health. If the body is healthy, then it is whole. But how can it be whole and yet be dependent, as it obviously is upon other bodies and upon the earth, upon all the rest of creation, in fact? Okay, let's pause here. We will go a little more further along, a little further along with Wendell Berry, but just let's pause to savor the wonder of such a question. How can we be whole if we depend totally and completely on the community of life? What does that say about the nature of nature herself? What does it say about our own true nature? And think about it too, the other way around. If we have so fragmented our our land. How are we going to have a wholeness in our body? We fragment the body of the earth. Does that not also correspond, go together with, come interwoven with fragmentation in our own mind and body and heart? So we're trying to understand wholeness, but we exist in a context of fragmentation. Now, we'll follow Wendell Berry a little further. This is going to be a longer passage. It's, it's a few paragraphs, and I'll let you know when we come to the end of it, but it's a worthwhile journey, so stay with it. Here's Wendell Berry. It immediately becomes clear that the health or wholeness of the body is a vast subject, and that to preserve it calls for a vast enterprise. Our bodies are not distinct from the bodies of other people on which they depend in a complexity of ways from biological to spiritual. They are not distinct from the bodies of plants and animals with which we are involved in the cycles of feeding and in the intricate companionships of ecological systems and of the spirit. They are not distinct from the earth, the sun and moon, and the other heavenly bodies. It is therefore absurd to approach the subject of health piecemeal 
with a departmentalized band of specialists, a medical doctor uninterested in nutrition, in agriculture, in the wholesomeness of mind and spirit, is as absurd as a farmer who is uninterested in health. Our fragmentation of this subject cannot be our cure because it is our disease. The body cannot be whole alone. Persons cannot be whole alone. It is wrong to think that bodily health is compatible with spiritual confusion or cultural disorder, or with polluted air and water or impoverished soil. Intellectually, we know that these patterns of interdependence exist. We understand them better now, perhaps, than we ever have before. Yet modern social and cultural patterns contradict them and make it difficult or impossible to honor them in practice. To try and heal the body alone is to collaborate in the destruction of the body. Healing is impossible in loneliness. It is the opposite of loneliness. Conviviality is healing. To be healed, we must come with all the other creatures to the feast of creation. Our fatal sickness is despair, a wound that cannot be healed because it is encapsulated in loneliness, surrounded by speechlessness. Past the scale of the human, our works do not liberate us, they confine us. They cut off access to the wilderness of creation where we must go to be reborn, to receive the awareness at once humbling and exhilarating, grievous and joyful that we are a part of creation, one with all that we live from and all that in turn lives from us. They destroy the communal rites of passage that turn us toward the wilderness and bring us home again. Perhaps the fundamental damage of the specialist system, the damage from which all other damages issue, has been the isolation of the body. At some point we began to assume that the life of the body would be the business of grocers and medical doctors, who need take no interest in the spirit, whereas the life of the spirit would be the business of the churches, which would have at best only a negative interest in the body. In the same way, we began to see nothing wrong with putting the body, most often somebody else's body, but frequently our own, to a task that insulted the mind and demeaned the spirit and we began to find it easier than ever to prefer our own bodies to the bodies of other creatures and to abuse, exploit, and otherwise hold in contempt those other bodies for the greater good or comfort of our own. By dividing body and soul, we divide both from all else. We thus condemn ourselves to a loneliness for which the only compensation is violence against other creatures, against the earth, against ourselves. 
For no matter the distinctions we draw between body and soul, body and earth, ourselves and others, the connections, the dependences, the identities remain. And so we fail to contain or control our violence. It gets loose. Though there are categories of violence, or so we think, there are no categories of victims. Violence against one is ultimately violence against all. The willingness to abuse other bodies is the willingness to abuse one's own. To damage the earth is to damage your children. To despise the ground is to despise its fruit. To despise the fruit is to despise its eaters. The wholeness of health is broken by despite. If competition is the correct relation of creatures to one another and to the earth, then we must ask why exploitation is not more successful than it is. Why, having lived so long at the expense of other creatures and the earth, are we not healthier and happier than we are? Why does modern society exist under the constant threat of the same suffering, deprivation, spite, contempt, and obliteration that it has imposed on other people and other creatures? Why do the health of the body and the health of the earth decline together? And why, in consideration of this decline of our worldly flesh and household, our sinful earth, Are we not healthier in spirit? Our spirits seem more and more to comfort themselves by buying things. No longer in need of the exalted drama of grief and joy, they feed now on little shocks of greed, scandal, and violence. For many of the churchly, the life of the spirit is reduced to a dull preoccupation with getting to heaven. At best, the world is no more than an embarrassment and a trial to the spirit which is otherwise radically separated from it. The true lover of God must not be burdened with any care or respect for his works. While the body goes about its business of destroying the earth, the soul is supposed to lie back and wait for Sunday, keeping itself free of earthly contaminants. While the body exploits other bodies, The soul stands aloof, free from sin, crying to the gawking bystanders, I am not enjoying it. As far as this sort of religion is concerned, the body is no more than the lusterless container of the soul, a mere package that will nevertheless light up in eternity, forever cool and shiny as a neon cross. This separation of the soul from the body and from the world is no disease of the fringe, no aberration, but a fracture that runs through the mentality of institutional religion like a geologic fault. And this rift in the mentality of religion continues to characterize the modern mind, no matter how secular or worldly it becomes. But I have not stated my point exactly enough. This rift is not like a geologic fault. It is a geologic fault. It is a flaw in the mind that runs inevitably into the earth.
I do not want to speak of unity misleadingly or too simply. Obvious distinctions can be made between body and soul, one body and other bodies, body and world. But these things that appear to be distinct are nevertheless caught in a network of mutual dependence and influence that is the substantiation of their unity. Body, soul, or mind, or spirit, community, and world are all susceptible to each other's influence, and they are all conductors of each other's influence. All that is certain is that an error introduced anywhere in the network ramifies beyond the scope of prediction. Consequences occur all over the place, and each consequence breeds further consequences. But it seems unlikely that an error can ramify endlessly. It spreads by way of the connections in the network, but sooner or later, it must also begin to break them. We are talking, obviously, about a circulatory system. And a disease of a circulatory system tends first to impair circulation and then to stop it altogether. Healing, on the other hand, complicates the system by opening and restoring connections among the various parts, in this way restoring the ultimate simplicity of their union. When all the parts of the body are working together, are under each other's influence, we say that it is whole, it is healthy. The same is true of the world, of which our bodies are parts. The parts are healthy insofar as they are joined harmoniously to the whole. What the specialization of our age suggests in one example after another is not only that fragmentation is a disease, but that the diseases of the disconnected parts are similar or analogous to one another. Thus they memorialize their lost unity, their relation persisting in their disconnection. Any severance produces two wounds that are, among other things, the record of how the severed parts once fitted together. What I have been trying to do is define a pattern of disintegration that is at once cultural and agricultural. It is impossible for material order to exist side by side with spiritual disorder, or vice versa, and impossible for one to thrive long at the expense of the other. It is impossible ultimately to preserve ourselves apart from our willingness to preserve other creatures or to respect and care for ourselves except as we respect and care for other creatures. And most to the point of this book, 
it is impossible to care for each other more or differently than we care for the earth. Okay, that's the passage. It was a long one. Thanks for sticking it out, but I think it was well worth the journey. I do love the last line, maybe most of all. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful passage. But that last line really sings. It is impossible to care for each other more or differently than we care for earth. And that would include the whole community of life, which he also explicitly makes clear. In our inquiry together, we seek connections that are indissoluble, though obscured, in our present context. These connections are obscured by our way of knowing ourselves, each other, and the world, our way of knowing and being, our whole way of life and love. And this way of knowing, this way of being, goes completely together with conscious human purposes in general. We seek an entrance into wholeness and the wonder and magic of wholeness. Wonder itself is, in fact, the entrance into wholeness. Wonder and wholeness then invite us into an expansiveness inconceivable to our habitual mind. If we cannot heal except in wholeness, if we cannot know better without knowing more holistically, then what is the wholeness of our being? What is the wholeness of our thinking? What is the wholeness of our activity that we must surely in our present state fail to touch, fail to practice and fully realize? Paul Shepard, among others, invites us to see that wild beings are indispensable to our wholeness and thus to our healing, our thinking and creativity and our meaning and purpose. And Wendell Berry, of course, touched on that as well. But Shepard's a very interesting thinker, thinker and he's helpful to think along with. In his book, The Others, How Animals Made Us Human, Shepard invites us to see how, quote, the human species emerged enacting, dreaming, and thinking animals and cannot be fully itself without them. Wild beings facilitated our individual and species self-knowing, and they provided metaphors for transformation. In other words, they helped ground our spiritual or philosophical life, or you can think of it as our religious life as well, either out of their divine imperative or simply as part of the wonder, the mystery, the sacredness we all are. And again, we want to keep in mind the larger mandala that our previous contemplation and, in fact, other contemplations have laid out for us. When Shepard is talking about how wild beings influenced, shaped 
our dreaming and our thinking and that we can't be fully ourselves without them. He's saying that they're part of the ecology of mind and that thinking without them is not our best thinking. Wild beings of all kinds embodied our cosmologies, not in the sense that we merely projected onto them, but in the sense that we learned those cosmologies from the activity, the living thinking of those wild beings. We touched cosmology directly in our relationships with them. We touched the divine, the sacred, the great mystery itself. They enriched our language, not only with these teachings, but with their own sounds, their styles of communication and communion, and in the ways we tried to speak with and listen to them, to live with them and allow them to live through us. They constituted our being as they helped us practice and realize our place, our purpose in living ecologies. Domestication, as Shepard sees it, Paul Shepard, Domestication involved the disruption of this mature relationship with mature beings, mature presences and ways of life, ways of thinking and knowing. Domestication interrupted them. Domesticated animals seemed to Paul Shepard like immature examples, constrained examples, and they began to displace the wild beings in our souls as well as in the landscape. This in turn resulted in what Shepard calls an ontogenetic crippling of the human. That means ontogenetic, ontogenesis is our development. And we've been talking about consciousness being dependent on its developmental path. Now, if consciousness develops in a context in which we have vitalizing relationships with wild beings and we care for other creatures the way we care for ourselves, We care for the earth the way we care for ourselves. Then in that kind of context, consciousness develops a certain way. Domestication and being cut off from spiritual and ecological realities cripples our developmental progress, our developmental path, derails it, redirects it, slows it down, limits it, fragments it. And this degrades social bonds in the human community as well, which became increasingly isolated from wildness. Now, this limiting is something that you might be familiar with. We we know that even the brain size, and we're very materialistic, of course, this would be the funny thing about Nietzsche, right? How do we understand an animal not by being out in the wild, but we kill it and take it back to a room where we can measure and weigh and count. And when we measure, weigh and count, we see that a domesticated version has a smaller brain size. That's one of the things that happens. And that domesticated animals seem to lose some of their intelligence and the variety of their behavior. And we see this time and time again. Paul Shepard ends his book with a letter from the others. And so the title is The Others, and he means the other beings, the ones that Wendell Berry was talking about. In particular, he means wild beings. And Wendell Berry would have in mind all of them. Shepard did too. He really, of course, loathed large-scale agriculture, this kind of factory farming, 
But he also was not a fan of any kind of domestication. He and Barry might disagree a little bit on some of those points. But he's written a book about the others and how they made us what we are. And he ends it with a letter from the others, from our wild kin, which is delivered by Bear. Now, here's the letter. I'll read it to you. It's a beautiful thing to receive it. Can we imagine that this is coming from our wild kin? Dear Primate, P. Shepherd, and Interested Parties, We nurtured the humans from a time before they were in the present form. When we first drew around them, they were, like all animals, secure in a modest niche. Their evident peculiarities were clearly higher primate in their obsession, social status, and personal identity. In that respect, they had grown smart, subtle, and devious, committed to a syndrome of tumultuous, aseasonal, erotic, hierarchic power. Like their nearest kin, they had elevated a certain kind of attention to a remarkable acuity, which made them caring, protective, mean, and nasty in the peculiar combination of squinched facial feature and general pettiness of monkeys. In ancient savannas, we slowly teased them out of their chauvinism. In our plumage, we gave them aesthetics. In our courtships, we tutored them in dance. In the gestures of antlered heads, we showed them ceremony and the power of the mask. In our running hooves, we revealed the secret of grain as meat we courted them from within. As foragers, their glance shifted a little from corms and rootlets, from the incessant bickering and scuffling of their inherited social introversion. They began looking at the horizon, where some of us were both danger and greater substance. At first it was just a nudge, food stolen from the residue of lion kills, contended for with jackals and vultures, the search for hidden newborn gazelles, slow turtles and eggs. We gradually became for them objects of thought, of remembering, telling, planning, and puzzling us out as the mystery of energy itself. We tutored them from the outside, Dancing us, they began to see in us performances of their ideas and feelings. We became the concreteness of their own secret selves. We ate them and were eaten by them, and so taught them the first metaphor of their frantic sociality, the outerness of themselves and ourselves as their inwardness. As a bequest of protein, we broke the incessant round of herbivorous munching, giving them leisure. This made possible the lithe repose of apprentice predation and a new meaning for rumination, freeing them from the drudgery of browsing and the grip of relentless interpersonal strife. Bringing them into omnivorousness, we transformed them forever and they entered the game as a different player. 
Not that they abandoned their appetite for greens and fruits, but enlarged it to seeds and meat and to the risky landscapes of the mind. The savanna or tundra was essential to this tutorial as a spaciousness open to infinite strategies of pursuit and escape, stretching the senses to their most distant reference. Their thought was invited to a new kind of executorship, incorporating remembrance and planning to parallels between themselves and the others and to words, our names, that enabled them to share images and ideas. Having been committed in this way, first as food and then as the imagery of a great variety of events and processes, from signs and dreams to symbols and metaphysics, we have accompanied humans ever since. Having made them human, we continue to do so individually and now serve more and more in therapeutic ways, holding their hands, so to speak, as they kill our wildness. As slaves, we stay close, as something to pet and to speak to, someone to be there and need them, to be their first lesson in otherness, We have shared their homes for 10,000 years. They have made that tie a bond. From the private home we have gone out to the wounded and lonely, to those yearning for unqualified devotion, to hospitals, hospices, homes for the aged, wards of the sick, the enclaves of the physically and mentally challenged, We now elicit speech from the autistic and trust from those in prison. All that is well enough, but it involves only our minimal domesticated selves, not our wild and perfect forms. It smells of dependency. They still do not realize that they need us thinking that we are simply one more comfort or curiosity. We have not regained the central place in their thought or meaning at the heart of their ecology and philosophy. Too often we are merely physical reality, mindless passion and brutality, or abstract tropes and symbols. Sometimes we have to be underhanded, We slip into their dreams, we hide in the language disguised in an illusion, we mask our philosophical role in nature aesthetics, we cavort to entertain, we wait in children's books, in pretty pictures, as burlesques in cartoons, as toys, designs in the very wallpaper, as rudimentary companion or pets. We are marginalized, trivialized. We have sunk to being objects, commodities, possessions. We remain meat and hides, but only as a do and not as sacred gifts. They have forgotten how to learn the future from us, to follow our example, to heal themselves with our tissues and organs, forgotten that just watching our wild selves can be healing. 
Once we were the bridges, exemplars of change, mediators with the future and the unseen. Their own numbers leave little room for us, and in this is their great misunderstanding. They are wrong about our departure, thinking it to be a part of their progress instead of their emptying. When we have gone, they will not know who they are. Supposing themselves to be the purpose of it all, purpose will elude them. Their world will fade into an endless dusk with no whippoorwill to call the owl in the evening and no thrush to make a dawn. Signed, The Others. It's a powerful letter. I especially like that the end, that the thrush makes the dawn and we don't realize that it's an inconceivable thought from within our conquest consciousness. And something in this letter from the others resonates with various speeches and writings of indigenous peoples, at least here on Turtle Island. For instance, in response to a missionary who sought to convert indigenous peoples to Christianity, the great orator Red Jacket of the Seneca Nation said the following, Your forefathers crossed the great waters and landed on this island. Their numbers were small. They found friends and not enemies. They told us they had fled their own country for fear of wicked men and come here to enjoy their religion. They asked for a small seat. We took pity on them, granted their request, and they sat down amongst us. We gave them corn and meat. They gave us poison in return. The white people had now found our country, Tidings were carried back, and more came amongst us. Yet we did not fear them. We took them to be friends. They called us brothers. We believed them and gave them a larger seat. At length, their numbers had greatly increased. They wanted more land. They wanted our country. Our eyes were opened and our minds became uneasy. Wars took place. Indians were hired to fight against Indians, and many of our people were destroyed. They also brought strong liquor among us. It was strong and powerful, and has slain thousands. Brother, our seats were once large, and yours were very small. You have now become a great people, and we have scarcely a place left to spread our blankets. You have got our country, but are not satisfied. You want to force your religion upon us. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, 
and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. Another artifact, and, and maybe we should make clear that this this has nothing to do with some problem in Christianity itself. The question is, what's the style of consciousness engaging with Christian teachings? What's the style of consciousness those teachings really aim for? And is that the style of consciousness most Christians experience? Another artifact that comes to mind, not long after becoming president of the United States, Andrew Jackson wrote the following letter to the Muscogee Nation. And actually, he seems to have stopped looking at the various tribes as nations and lumped them all together as others. And the rhetoric in this letter is in its own way frightening, all the more so given what followed when the indigenous peoples naturally refused to obey such a condescending line of BS. But here's what the president wrote. Friends and brothers, by permission of the great spirit above and the voice of the people, I have been made president of the United States and now speak to you as your father and friend and request you to listen. Your warriors have known me long. You know I love my white and red children and always speak with a straight and not with a forked tongue. That I have always told you the truth. I now speak to you as my children in the language of truth. Listen. Where you now are, you and my white children are too near to each other to live in harmony and peace. Your game is destroyed and many of your people will not work until the earth. Beyond the great river Mississippi, where a part of your nation has gone, your father has provided a country large enough for all of you and he advises you to remove to it. There your white brothers will not trouble you. They will have no claim to the land, and you can live upon it, you and all your children, as long as the grass grows or water runs, in peace and plenty. It will be yours forever. For the improvements in the country where you now live, and for all the stock which you cannot take with you, your father will pay you a fair price. Where you now live, your white brothers have always claimed the land. The land beyond the Mississippi belongs to the president and to no one else, and he will give it to you forever. Now that's a heck of a letter, isn't it? Man, some condescending nonsense and just astonishing. Chief Speckled Snake gave his reply to the uh, Muscogee Indians. This is what he was replying to this letter, but speaking to his people. Brothers, when the white man first came to these shores, the Muscogees gave them land and kindled him a fire to make him comfortable. And when the pale faces of the South, that's the Spanish, made war on him, their young men drew the tomahawk and protected his head from the scalping knife. But when the white man had warmed himself before the Indians' fire, and filled himself with the Indian's hominy, he became very large. He stopped not for the mountain tops, and his feet covered the plains and the valleys. His hands grasped the eastern and western sea. Then he became our great father. He loved his red children, but said, You must move a little further, 
lest I should by accident tread on you. With one foot he pushed the red man over the Okone, and with the other he trampled down the graves of his fathers. But our great father still loved his red children, and he soon made them another talk. He said much, but it all meant nothing. Nothing but move a little farther. You are too near me. I have heard a great many talks from our great father, and they all began and ended the same. Brothers, when he made us a talk on a former occasion, he said, Get a little farther. Go beyond the Okoni and the Akmolge. There is a pleasant country. He also said, It will be yours forever. Now, he says, the land you live on is not yours. Go beyond the Mississippi. There is game. There you may remain while the grass grows or the water runs. Brothers, Will not our great father come there also? He loves his red children, and his tongue is not forked. When Jackson didn't get what he wanted from the letter he sent, he opened debate on the Indian Removal Act, and from that followed the incredible suffering of the Trail of Tears. Let's go back to Paul Shepard. He has another book, Coming Home to the Pleistocene. This is what he writes there. When we grasp fully that the best expressions of our humanity were not invented by civilization, but by cultures that preceded it, that the natural world is not only a set of constraints, but of context within which we can more fully realize our dreams, we will be on the way to a long overdue reconciliation between opposites, which are of our own making. That's very loaded, given everything that we've thought about. We go back to David Strayer and that idea that being out in the wild is where he, as a cognitive neuroscientist, was getting his best ideas. And then he demonstrated that that's true for other people as well. And here we have this idea of the reconcili reconciliation of opposites. Healing the wound in the earth, that geological fault that the poet-farmer Wendell Berry invited us to see, and we can see it everywhere. Where we make dualities, we make a wound. Now, it's not that we need to give up our discernment. It's that true discernment, true wisdom, liberates us from practicing and realizing dualities as if they were solid and absolute. Not only does the degradation of nature follow from this kind of duality, the fundamental duality between self and world, between nature and culture, human and nature, we could refer to that as maybe the most fundamental fallacy. And we in the dominant culture are lived by it, and we perpetuate it. It's a style of ignorance a way of actively misknowing ourselves, actively misknowing ourselves and our world. Wendell Berry suggested that it is impossible to care for each other more or differently than we care for the earth. What if it is impossible to presence wisdom, love, and beauty differently for each other than we do for the earth? You can fill in your highest value. 
what version of wisdom, love, or beauty would you say, I, this is what I live for? Community, family, compassion, benevolence, knowledge, learning, creativity. What if it is impossible to presence any form of wisdom, love, and beauty differently for each other than we do for earth and the whole community of life? And what would that say about how education functions in this culture, how corporations function, how families and friendships function, how government functions, how economies function? How can we begin to know ourselves and our world in a way that reflects these profound cosmic facts, the facts of our interwovenness? The wisdom traditions of the world offer us guidance to do just that, even though we must each find our own way. We must also join together to find a way forward on the basis of the common ground we share, that common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty. We cannot help ourselves in the world if we continue to act like atomized individuals. Our strength lies precisely in our interwovenness. Nothing can ever overcome it. If you have questions, reflections, or stories to share about the the wildness, the wonder of the community of life, our other relations, our interwovenness with the others, with the wild ones, and that interwovenness of earth and soul. Send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. And there's more to say on this. Maybe we'll continue this thread. A couple of possibilities for our next contemplation and then some more interviews coming up as well. I'm excited to share all of that with you. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.